good morning and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I am your host and we have an interesting discussion lined up for today. We're going to be talking about a particular article, actually two articles that came out on the ByFaithOnline.com website dealing with the subject of Pado Communion. Now, these two articles were written from two varying, differing perspectives, and so we're going to talk about the subject and interact a little bit, perhaps, with some of the comments that were left on that website, but more information about that. Also, don't forget about the mobile app that we are offering. We've had a significant amount of interest and downloads from it, more than I'd actually hoped for, and so you can get that as well at our ConfessingOurHope.com website, where all the information is and as usual if you want to write me you can do so good bad indifferent i don't care just write confessing our hope at gpts.edu if you have suggestions for the show guess i want to hear about it um, comments and so forth please write in and i will get back to you as soon as humanly possible now as i indicated we are going to be talking with um the president of Greenville Seminary, who was also one of the authors of the article that I indicated up front today. He had written an article against or in opposition to the, uh, the view that children should be admitted to the table prior to an examination or, or um, uh, meeting with the session of the church. And our guest in studio today is Dr. Joseph Piper, and he is, as I said, the president of Greenville Seminary. And we're going to be talking in interaction format, as it were, with some of the comments that were offered on the website, talking about the subject and interacting with the other man who um, wrote in favor of Pado Communion, Dr. Robert Rayburn, who wrote another article. Um, so it's in a sense, Dr. Piper, that By Faith Online was doing the fair and balanced approach to um, theological interaction. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But welcome back. Um, I know we've been a while since you've been back on. But I know this is a subject that's been discussed quite frequently in the church for the last, I don't know how many years. And um, I'm not really sure why that is the case. But can you just briefly, for the sake of the listeners, explain what we mean when we say pedo communion? Thank you, Bill. And it's good to be back on the program. I think that we can just begin with Dr. Rayburn's uh, definition. He said, the advocates of paedo-communion, by which is meant the participation in the Lord's Supper by baptized, weaned covenant children. So the argument of paedo-communion is that as soon as a child can take uh, regular food beyond nursing, then the child can participate in the Lord's Supper. They say there's no need for a profession of faith. There's no need for vows to be taken, no need for examination. Just because the child's a baptized member of the covenant, the child may come to the Lord's table. We would point out, uh, in contrast to that, we're not talking about what age a child can make an intelligent profession of faith. We don't personally hold to the fact a child's got to be 12 or 17 or 18. Each child will differ. But the child must be able, from our point of view, I believe the Bible and definitely the confession's point of view, child must be able to be, examine himself, give an, artic, give an articulate confession of faith, and take vows. Okay. Now, you mentioned the confession, and, and, and both uh, Dr. Robert Rayburn and yourself um, are members, um, teaching elders, as a matter of fact, in confessional churches. And when we say confessional churches, what do we mean? Well, by that, we are, our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, along with other Presbyterian denominations, uh, have a confessional standard, the Westminster Confession of Faith, with the larger and shorter catechisms, and office bearers, ministers, ruling elders, and deacons uh, take a vow of subscription that they hold to the doctrines that are taught in the standards. Okay. And what is the position, and this is, well, perhaps an obvious answer, but more specifically, Obviously, those listening to this know that my guest is going to affirm the confessional position because of the article that was written. But I think for sake of clarity, um, simply saying the confession is opposed to pedo communion is insufficient. What we want to do is actually discuss what it says and then move from there. So, Dr. Piper, what does the 
our standards tell us on this subject and perhaps maybe amplify it as you're going okay. through it. Well, I, b- I believe that the proponents of pedocommunion would agree that the uh, Westminster standards clearly teach that only those who can discern the body of Christ and make a uh, profession of faith should come to the Lord's Supper, or to put it another way, those who can exercise faith in the reception of the Lord's Supper. Larger Catechism 169 says that we're to take and eat the bread and drink the wine in thankful remembrance that the body of Christ was broken and given and his blood shed. 170, how do they worthily communicate in the Lord's Supper? How do they that worthily communicate feed upon the body and blood of Christ? Well, they feed upon the body and blood of Christ, not after a corporal and carnal, but a spiritual manner, yet truly and really, while by faith they receive and apply unto themselves Christ crucified. Let me just point out here in amplifying that the Bible's position articulated very clearly by Calvin. There's been some response to these articles that fail to understand this. Calvin was quite clear that there was no positive benefit in the Lord's Supper apart from an active exercise of faith. And all the larger catechism is doing here is following Calvin. Otherwise, you've got a sacramentalism. Uh, it's, It's almost a Romanism to say that uh, there's a blessing to the sacrament regardless of the exercise of faith. And that's what the larger catechism is teaching. 171, how are they that receive the sacrament to prepare themselves? They that receive the sacrament are before they come to prepare themselves thereunto by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, of the true measure and their knowledge of faith, repentance, love to God and brethren, charity to all men, forgiving those that have done them wrong of their desires after Christ and of their new obedience, and by renewing the exercise of these graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. And this requirement for self-examination is premised upon 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul says that those who come to the table are to examine themselves. And then What is required of them that receive the Lord's Supper in the time of the ministration of it, 174, it's required of them that receive the sacrament that during the time of the ministration, with all holy reverence and attention, they wait upon God in that ordinance, diligently observe the sacramental elements and actions, heedfully discern the Lord's body, which again is based upon 1 Corinthians 11. Traditionally, that's been understood as Christ's presence in the Lord's Supper. Mm-hmm. Pentecommunion advocates say, well, it's to discern the church as the body of Christ, but that still takes uh, a level of discernment. So discern the Lord's body, affectionately meditate on his death, etc. So it's quite clear that we are to exercise faith in the reception of uh, the Lord's Supper, and that requires an element of of uh, knowledge and some Christian maturity, plus the seriousness of examination and of um, taking vows, which we'll, we'll come to in a moment, why I think uh, is, is a part of our response that has been ignored, mm-hmm. I think, in the argument. You, make, you, you actually t- said two things that I want to come back to. Um, you mentioned the classic passage text that uh, this discussion always seems to end up on. 1 Corinthians 11. We're going to come back to that one in a second. But I want to get you to comment on those ad, those who advocate the uh, the pedo-communion position would agree, I think, that that's what the confession says. But they would not agree that the confession is accurately exegeting such passages Correct. as 1 Corinthians 11. So I don't think in any way, shape, or form today's conversation is 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 meant to be a slam or that these people don't believe the integrity of the Bible or anything else before someone says that, because I've read the comments on the websites, and <clears throat> frankly, some people were, well, less than charitable in their responses. Um, but the issue is, seems to always gravitate towards this understanding of 1 Corinthians 11 and what it means to discern the body. So can you help us with the exegetical understanding of that? passage. I mean, certainly we're not, Paul's 
he, he's not just starting a whole new argument in First Corinthians 11, I don't think. So maybe help us out a little bit there. Well, no. And I, I commend an article by uh, Dr. George Knight that is in our seminary book, On the Covenant, where he has um, very good, thorough exegesis of First Corinthians 11. And what Dr. Knight points out, and Paul does this in many uh, many of his arguments, he begins by addressing a particular problem. As he begins to address that problem, he then lays down a universal biblical principle. So Paul here will move from the problem of factions at the Lord's table and improper use to the principle that he lays down in verses 23 and following of how one, of the institution of the Lord's Supper. Then he moves from the institution of the Lord's Supper to how one participates in the Lord's Supper. So after laying down the institution, he says in verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner should be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So there's a warning. There is an unworthy participation which in itself implies that there's got to be some ability to discern, am I taking worthily or not? Is, is baptism simply qualify me to take worthily? Well, he says then in verse 28, let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Now there he's clear. Re regardless of how one dis what is meant by discerning the body, Paul is calling for a level of self-examination to participate rightly in the Lord's Supper. With another warning, for he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Now, at this point, the Pado communion proponents will say, well, he's dealing with divisions in the body. And so here he's just simply talking about not creating schism or division in the body of Christ. But if you follow his argument, he's moved from the divisions to the institution of the Lord's Supper to the need of proper participation through examination in order that we rightly judge the body. And then gives this very serious sanction that many are weak and sick and a number sleep because of improper participation in the Lord's Supper. So when the uh, opponents of our position are the agnostic questioners say, where is the exegesis? Well, here is the, the classic passage that deals with uh, the Lord's Supper and how one uh, is to behave in the Lord's Supper. You know, I think it's interesting, Bill, that uh, the, we, we teach, the Bible teaches that the two sacraments are the visible preaching of the Word. Mm -hmm. Now, no proponent of communion will say that there, well, I hope they wouldn't, that there are blessings in the Word when it's just heard. Because in the parable of the soils, the first hearer that Christ addresses is the one that pays no attention. He's in the presence of the speaking of the Word, but faith is not interacting with the Word. As the writer of the Hebrews demands, that the children of Israel fell in the wilderness because they did not, by faith, interact with the Word. So if faith's necessary to profit from preaching, it's surely necessary to profit from the Lord's Supper. It's even necessary to profit from baptism. We don't say there's profit to the infant personally in baptism until that infant has grown to the reality of understanding uh, something of regeneration and his, his faith in Christ. And you say that as much in your article on the last, the second to last paragraph, you, you make reference to this aspect of uh, the the point being that just because you're physically present in the room when the sermon's preached doesn't necessitate or necessarily guarantee any blessing. Right. Um, you could be sitting there, and we've all experienced this, I think. We could be sitting there in the sermon as regenerated people and be thinking about everything but the sermon. I mean, where's the what blessing comes from that? It's not as though it just falls out of the sky as in a, in, in a sense of osmosis and just lands in my heart and changes me. I'm not even paying attention to what's going on, which really leads me to um, the other point that you made earlier, 
this idea of the active and passive relationship between the sacraments, it seems to me, I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but it does seem to me that the, those who hold to papal communion um, equate the sacrament of baptism as being on the same plane. They're both institutions of Christ. I think we all would agree with that. They are both important, and they are the only two that Christ gave his church, but there's a difference in the way they are. Well, and again, the larger catechism addresses this, and I trust our hearers will understand. When I refer to the catechism or the confession, uh, I'm not putting that above Scripture. I simply believe that that these questions and answers in the larger catechism are the proper interpretation of Scripture. Uh, they're just giving it to us in summary form. The same way if I preach, I'm telling my congregation, I think the Bible means this. That's what we have here. So 176, we're into the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Agree. Well, they agree in the author of both is God. The spiritual part of both is Christ and his benefits. Both are seals of the same covenant, are to be dispensed by ministers of the gospel and by none other, and to be continued in the church of Christ until his second coming. Wherein do they differ? It's 177. They differ in that baptism is to be administered but once, we all would agree with that, with water, to be a sign and seal of our regeneration and engrafting into Christ, and that even to infants. Wherein the Lord's Supper is to be administered often in the elements of bread and wine to represent and exhibit Christ as spiritual nourishment to the soul and to confirm our continuance and growth in Him, and that only to such as are of years and ability to examine themselves. So just as regeneration is an act in which the recipient is passive, baptism, a sacrament of regeneration and engrafting into Christ, is a in terms of the recipient, there's a complete passivity. Now parents that bring their children exercise a faith in the God of the covenant. When making a profession of faith and being baptized is publicly owning Christ, but the sacrament itself is a picture of what the Spirit's done. Whereas in the Lord's Supper, it is uh, the sacrament of spiritual nourishment mm-hmm. and of confirmation and of continuance, and it demands an active faith. That's why it's repeated. Uh, the passive sacrament just needs to be done once. Regeneration is but once. But we live by faith in Christ, and thus the Lord's Supper is the sacrament of faith. Yeah, and, and it does seem, I mean, logically— it makes a lot of sense because wherein the child being baptized makes no uh, definitive move to be baptized. That is something that the parents are involved in, the church is involved in, the, ba- the child is baptized not against his will, not with his will. There is, it's, it's sort of a neutral, as it were, he's just baptized. I mean, he doesn't have, most of the time, they don't even have a recollection of it other than the fact that they were told they were baptized. However, we have clearly in the New Testament the directives to remember, do this as often, um, as often as you do it. Remember what Christ did, his death, burial, his resurrection. All of these active elements are in role, but not to somebody else, but to the individual person who is engaged in that sacrament. You know, I'm glad you mentioned that uh, remembrance in, in 11... 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four, when he given thanks, he broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." This is a part of the argument that's often neglected. There is to be an active. This is why I think that we're discerning the body. There's an active remembrance of what Christ has done that is to be taking place as we participate in uh, the Lord's Supper. Now, perhaps those who advocate paedo communion may retort and say, "Well," Covenantally, they are remembering. But I don't know how that can be a personally applied element until they're justified in Christ. The other argument that is often presented, and it's one that um, Dr. Rayburn mentions, um, he doesn't really expound this much, um, but he does mention children present at the feasts especially in the Old Testament right. Well, this is something that they, they make a lot out of. Uh, you know, even if it were true, it's not, and I'll seek to show exegetically it's not, even if it were true, 
there are clear uh, advances uh, from the two Old Testament sacraments to the two New Testament sacraments. Uh, circumcision given just to men, uh, baptism to women as well as men. Uh, Lord's uh, Passover uh, was only required that men take the Passover. And so, for example, in, in Deuteronomy uh, 16, 16, three times in a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that the, includes the Passover, at the Feast of Weeks, at the Feast of Booths. They shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. So it was required that men come. Uh, women could go, and many did go. We see uh, um, Samuel's mother at the feast. Uh, Mary went up with Joseph to the feast. Uh, but there's no evidence that young children went to the feast. Mm -hmm. In fact, in Nehemiah, where the law is being read on the Feast of Booths, which was to take place every year, in Nehemiah chapter 8, in verse 3, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Mm. So clearly there, there, those that were there were those that could exercise understanding. And it seems the grammar of the text really does uh, imply that Jesus' first Passover was when he was 12. When he was 12, it says, he went up for the Passover, and that became Jewish custom later. So there really is no biblical evidence that little children took the feast and surely no biblical evidence they took the feast of the Passover. Now, we have to distinguish between the institution, the act of redemption, the redemptive Passover in Egypt where the whole family was together. Yes, the children were there. But in the sacramental observance of that event, then it was the men that were required to participate. And I don't think they make that distinction either. But even if the first one was, was legitimately, you know, I, I forgot, how you phrased it, but even if the children were present, it doesn't, the texts never tell us what level of knowledge or understanding they had of these things. They were just there. Well, that, not, yeah, but I'm not saying that that uh, no children were there. I'm just saying they have to have understanding. Right. And so that these texts that they In fact, they had to be able to ask the question, why are we doing this? Correct. And, and There was and, a catechetical element that Moses institutes. Yep, and and yeah, that and then really that's my point. Just because they that we can see that maybe children were here, maybe they were not. But the point is, just because they were there doesn't mean they didn't have knowledge, right? Um, you know, just making a wholesale argument that children are to be at the Lord's Supper because children were at the feasts in the Old Testament isn't isn't in and of itself a strong enough argument. Um, the children may have been there, and I could concede that I think and not do damage to my position because the argument then would have to be shown to me that those children that were there um, were not taught, were not instructed, and were not knowledgeable of the things that they were doing. Um, and this is really the issue. Well, and you really are, are coming at the issue of Dr. Rayburn's right. article, Historic Practice is Invisible in the Bible. In fact, Which is he has an argument, complete argument from silence. Mm -hmm. um, he admits in the Reformed tradition it's not been practiced. They try to appeal to the early church, but the historical studies that have been done, uh, surely in the Western church, um, it was a rarity that uh, Pado communion was observed. It was practiced, uh, I guess, fairly early on in the Eastern church, but the Eastern church has never been a paragon of uh, orthodox practice hmm. or even of a good theology. So his argument is an argument completely from silence, uh, we, uh, our arguments are confessional, but they also are exegetical, 1 Corinthians 11. But this whole matter of, that I try to introduce in my article is another part of the argument that has been ignored, and I don't think many of the readers picked up on it, and that is there are two elements to being in covenant. Mm -hmm. God makes covenant with our children, and our children are in the covenant of grace, Burkhoff would say, legally, some writers would say externally. 
But to enter into the fullness of the covenant, one must then take vows. And that's clear. For example, I I refer to Psalm 50, verse 5. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. So there is a progression that takes place that a child's in covenant with God, God, that child's heir of promises, uh, not heir of salvation. The Bible never says the child's the heir of salvation, is the heir of the promises. And then uh, that child must uh, own those promises by his own acceptance of them publicly. Now, whatever age a child can do that, that's, that's not the issue. But the child must be able to understand the seriousness of the third commandment to take these vows and to take Christ publicly. doesn't mean a child's not converted, but to take Christ publicly now brings a child into uh, an active participation in all of the covenant benefits. And, for example, when I pastored and received children, we examined them, I said, now you realize that from this point forward, it's not just your parents that are responsible for your discipline. Mm-hmm. You now have to answer to the elders in yet a, a, another way. Uh, and that, that's a very serious obligation right in itself you're taking on with respect to discipline in the church. Mm-hmm. And then uh, other thing that Rayburn does, it's, uh, he, it's this kind of logical fallacy of an appeal to an authority. He, he says Edmund Clowney, uh, who wrote the majority report, which would be our position, admitted that a substantial case could be made for pedo communion. Well, Dr. Clowney was a very gracious man, uh, and he probably thought that as well. But that doesn't mean that most theologians think a substantial case can be made for it. In fact, the farther we get from that report is I see the direction that some of the signers of the minority report have gone, uh, which now is almost into just a rank sacramentalism. Uh, I find it a position that I think is uh, completely antithetical, not just to the confession, but be. But the, well, I'll phrase that wrongly, to the Bible and the confession. I think it it introduces a sacramental theology that is destructive to uh, covenantal evangelical Christianity. How how would it destroy it? Well, what we have is a uh, a communication of salvific benefits uh, apart from um, th- through the sacrament. Uh, apart from an active repentance and faith. Now, uh, a, an infant can be regenerated and be in Christ, and if he dies in that state, he is converted. But it's not the baptism that does that for the infant. Mm-hmm. And this is saying that, that baptism and the Lord's Supper do something for us regardless of our faith. In fact, you'll have those now that would hold to this position and will say that uh, um, baptism regenerates, and that there are spiritual blessings in in these things apart from, well, just in their receiving them. Mm-hmm. One writer, one writer, one reader. Respondent. Yes, one respondent to your article asked this question, um, and I'm not going to use names for uh, obvious, obvious reasons. It's number two on your list. Um. But he says, uh, in reading your article, I'd like some clarifications on certain statements. And we've already kind of touched on this a little bit, but maybe we can go a little bit further. He, he says, you state that a child by baptism becomes a member of the church, small c. Surely this is not the same as in Acts 2. Do they have a vote at meetings? You also state that the child is legally part of the administration of the covenant of grace. Since communion is a means of grace, should not the child be included in this administration of grace? Well, we've already answered the second question. Um, And then your more understandable statement that they become an heir to the covenant promises. The ceremony, I believe, is more about the promises and the declarations of the parents and the congregation that this child is our responsibility to teach and nurture and discipline. He seems, um, as I am understanding what he's asking, he seems to be zeroing in on your first point, when you say he's an heir of the promises, but not heirs of salvation? Well, I think he agrees with that. That's not actually not a question. He says, uh, your more understandable statement is 
his questions really, I think, are in his first paragraph. Uh, in what way is a child a member of the church? Surely this is not the same as Acts 2. Well, actually it is the same as Acts 2. Mm-hmm. Acts 2 says that there were 5,000 souls added to the church that day. 3,000 souls added to the church that day. And the term souls can mean men, women, and children. Uh, but th- there's no statement in that that every one of those people was regenerate. We don't hold to regenerate membership in the church. We hold to credible profession or being the child or, or uh, under the the guardianship of one who makes that credible profession of faith. So, yes, in the same way that they were, a child is a member of the church, not a voting member because he is has not made those vows where he takes the covenant for himself. And I guess we could make the analogy that a child by birth in our country is a member of this nation. He's mm-hmm. a citizen. Yep. He can get a passport. He has rights to various things – privileges and benefits, but he doesn't vote until he comes to – now, in our country, it's it's merely a matter of, of age. But uh, if you were a naturalized citizen, then you also had to take vows and go through a period of study. So it's, it's not dissimilar from the fact you can be a member without voting privileges. In fact, early on in the PCA, a number of us tried to get the um, General Assembly to make a distinction between um, – communicant members who could not vote because Mm -hmm. one of the problems with our book of order is that if you uh, are a communicant member, which means you've been examined and you've been admitted to the Lord's table, you vote in a congregational meeting. And I think that we – that discourages, I think, letting younger children who could fitly come to the Lord's table uh, from being brought in by churches. I think we need to have really three memberships. We need a non-communing membership which is really what our baptism declares. Uh, we need a communing non-voting membership, and then we need a communing voting membership. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can hear the uh, non-confessional people now <laughs> on that point. I'm a Christian, so I'm a member of the church, and oh, the church is everywhere. Yeah. Now, the uh, other, his other question here, since communion is a means of grace, should not the child be included in this administration of grace? Well, I guess we have answered that, that uh, it is a means of grace, but it's a, it's a secondary means of grace. The child must be profiting from the primary means of grace, which is preaching before he's going to profit from the secondary means of grace. That's right. Another respondent, using the right term, I have to do that, you understand, um, <laughs> because not only is Dr. Piper the president, he's also my homiletics professor, and i got to tell you how many times I get busted that's if that's the right word busted because i use incorrect grammar at times just in casual conversation mind you it's hopefully different when i'm uh, anyway i digress um this one uh gentleman says i'm not a pedo communist but his second point and i will have just for sake of people who are completely lost this article is on the confessing website as well with the link and everything. So as you're listening to this podcast and you're hearing these things, you might want to be referencing the article so you can follow the line of thought. But he says, I'm not a paedo communist, but his second point, that is Dr. Piper's second point, pretty much puts him off the Calvinist reservation. I'll, I'll confess to chuckling a little when I read that initially. He can still be a Zwinglian. When the elements are received in faith, there is blessing, and faith should not, as Dr. Piper does, be equated with the ability to understand and expound propositional statements. Well, I don't know that I say that. I, when the elements are received in faith, there is a blessing. I agree. Um, faith, though, is not a leap in the dark. Right. Faith is a response to God's testimony in his word. So there must I didn't say expound, but there must be an ability to understand what God promises in his word for faith to be active or it's not faith. And and for the sake of the ignorant, and, and I think I'm probably gonna have to put myself in that camp, what what is exactly the distinction between the Calvinist camp and the Zwinglian camp on this? Well point? and I I think Zwingli here is not getting proper it's not this man. I mean, often does not get the proper 
Respect. Uh, Zwingli is often caricatured as being simply uh, a memorialist, and so that the sacrament is a sign that brings back to memory what Christ has done for us, but not a positive means of grace. Well, I think Zwingli did believe that baptism, uh, the Lord's Supper was a positive means of grace. But Calvin is the one that really clarified uh, the role of, of the Lord's Supper in God's communicating to us grace and spiritual nourishment. But Calvin's quite clear that for there to be that benefit, faith must be exercised, and we simply have to remind people that faith is not some unformed, implicit faith of the Roman Catholic Church. Faith is a response to God's revelation. So to some degree, the person who's going to profit from the Lord's Supper must exercise faith according to the things I read in the larger catechism. Good, and I think that's helpful. And I hope that answers those two comments that were presented on the website. Um, someone had wrote in, had Richard? responded. Thank you. See, there you go. I told you that he does <laughs> well, that. Well, this is not a casual conversation. Well, in a sense. But in a sense. I'm the host. The guest should be, never mind. But anyway, I, I, never mind. I won't go there. Another respondent says this. What small minds we must have to think that a young child cannot love Jesus as his or her Savior in the same way as that young child loves his or her parents as mommy and daddy. Now, I made a note in my margin when I printed these off for this particular broadcast, and I wrote in the margin, that's not the issue. Is that the issue, Dr. Piper? Are we saying that children can't love Jesus? No. And when my... Two-year-old says, I love Jesus. I accept that as a credible profession of faith. But that is not a level of faith in actively participating in the Lord's Supper. One of the words we use for the Lord's Supper is communion, mm-hmm. uh, because there is a communication, a two-way street that is taking place in participating in the Lord's Supper. So it's really not the question at all. Yeah, in fact, another respondent responds to that and says, this is not the issue. Probably where I got my comment, but who knows. You are not proving Rayburn's view, but the opposite. The issue isn't whether a young child can believe in and love Jesus or not. The issue of Pado communion is that you are able to partake of the supper because you are a covenant child who has been baptized even if there is no faith and love for Jesus. See, that's the issue. It is, because that, they, they automatically will say that every baptized child does have faith in Jesus. Or has a right to the yeah. table. Because they're baptized. Right. Some would, some would stop there, but others will actually are going to say, that's why I said you've got the sacramentalism at work now. So in the uh, Federal Vision branch of Pado Communion. So glad you brought that up. They, we've got those that are saying that because they're baptized, we know they have faith and love in Jesus. I've been, I make that comment because I've been sitting over here for 20 minutes <laughs> thinking about how to get that into the conversation without blindsiding um, Dr. Piper with it. Um, it is interesting to me, and, 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 and to be fair, not everybody who holds to federal vision um, holds to pay to communion, but it does seem, it's curious to me that a great number of those who are federal vision are pay to communions. Is there, do you see a connection? I do. They claim there's not. So well, of course there are those that hold to pedo communion that do, that have clear views with respect to the gospel of grace. But I, there, I see two things. One is I've seen in some proponents of pedo communion a movement from pedo communion increasingly into the positions of federal vision, which, for the sake of our hearers, is a. a a theology that is diverse, but the bottom line that baptism brings one into union with Christ Jesus in which one receives um, whether or not one is elect justification, adoption, sanctification, all the graces except the grace of perseverance. So if one's covenantally elect, which baptism makes, then one has these things. If one is eternally elect, God also will give to that one a persevering grace. So that moves logically out of pedo communion, because pedo communion, I think, has a truncated 
uh, sacramentarian view of the sacraments. So if you got that view of the Lord's Supper, mm-hmm. you're going to have that view with respect to baptism. So uh, apart from any interior operation of the Holy Spirit, baptism is doing something. Or they might say, well, the Holy Spirit uses baptism to bring these people into union, but it's whether they're elect or not. So there are some paedo-communists that don't go that way. There's some that from day one, they've embraced both positions together. But then there's been others that I've watched their progression from Pato communion into, I think, in increasingly federal vision positions. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I've witnessed that same tendency and as well. As Richard Weaver said, ideas have consequences. Uh, we need to understand when I say this is a sacramentarian view is that the next depot on the line is Romanism or Greek Orthodoxy, and a number of people have continued down this road, down the track, from Federal Vision, Pato Communion, into these um, other unions as well. Some would say this is just an intramural debate between Reformed Presbyterian guys that love the Bible, and I think that's true. I think they do love the Bible. I don't, as I said earlier, I don't think Dr. Rayburn is questioning the authenticity or the infallibility or any other thing about I think he loves Scripture and believes it's the inerrant, infallible Word of God, given. Uh, but some say it's an intramural discussion between Reformed brethren, and but at the end of the day, who cares? Well, should we care, and why, and what are the consequences if we were to tomorrow convene a synod or a, a, a general assembly and rewrite the confession and 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 make this the mainstream practice. Well, it's interesting that, again, they uh, will argue that there's mostly been silence uh, on this, Mm -hmm. that uh, the church hasn't addressed it one way or the other. Calvin, in fact, addressed it quite rigorously. And basically, if I remember correctly, Calvin used language that uh, we're giving a cup of poison to our children. That's why it's important. There are awful consequences to a a child who is unregenerate, um, as there is to an adult, Paul says, coming and taking uh, the Lord's Supper. But they would say, say, Dr. Piper, that you're starving them by not feeding them the covenant meal. Well, but... They have to Greater means the grace is the preaching of the Word. Uh, Until they can profit from the preaching of the Word... If that were the case, they are being starved. Uh, they're to be catechized. They're taught the word at home in catechetical covenant instruction in the church. That are brought into worship and to be taught how to listen to preaching. But that doesn't happen overnight. Uh, are we saying that, you know, I mean, God provides for little children. He, but he gives them food in the, in the manner that they can handle it. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of the uh, prime rib of of the food that we're, when we're getting to here, that uh, a young digestive system can't handle it. But it, it, it well, it, isn't that the argument the writer of the Hebrews makes? You mm-hmm. start with milk, and then you move to meat. And I just think that the Lord's Supper, in, in this sense, is meat. It's, yes, it's great nourishment, and I want my children, grandchildren there as, as uh, quickly as it will truly profit them and not do them harm, but there is harm for them. Um, One of the arguments that we hear is that Paul is only addressing uh, adults in 1 Corinthians 11, and thus it's not a a valid argument uh, for or against children. But the the problem is he's not just addressing adults. Once he moves into the matter of what the sacrament is about, he's addressing uh, the church. And so I think that we need to be aware that this is, uh, because one of the respondents said the use of 1 Corinthians 11 examine language to argue against covenant children partaking of the supper is weak. It reminds me of Baptists using Acts 2.38 language to argue against baptism of covenant children. Well, there's a great difference there, that um, repent and be baptized is addressed to adults. But examine yourselves as addressed to all those who would come to the Lord's Supper. I don't know that, that we can make a distinction, the same parallel, um, 
with respect to our covenant children because of the danger. There's, there's no danger announced in the Bible of, a, of an infant being baptized, but there's great dangers announced in 1 Corinthians 11 of uh, an infant or a young child taking, or a little weaned child taking the Lord's Supper. A little short on time, um, and the issue is obviously bigger than a 45-minute discussion. But I think we've covered a lot of the highlights, maybe the lowlights as well. But here's the question. Um, Much has been written. There's much in print about this subject. Um, From various schools of Reformed thought, um, not just the Presbyterian, but you have the uh, URC, um, has weighed in on these matters and other such um, Reformed denominations. URC, just for the sake of you here, is, is United Reformed Churches yes. of North America. Yes, thank you. Now, what kind of resources might you recommend? I know there's one book that we have actually have in our bookstore right now. I don't know how many copies we have, but we have at least one. Um, but there's others as well. Do you? Well, I think Cornell Venema's book is uh, one of the best books available. Uh, the book you mentioned that is the historical argument. Yep, that's the one. Uh, Matthew, Matthew Windsor, I believe is his name. Don't quote me on that, but I will make sure that the website actually has the right one if okay. that's not right. But I think that's it. Those would be two good places to start. And then we have the minutes, the majority and minority reports of the PCA on the subject. Um, I don't know how I'd get a hold of those, but I think I could probably find them. Easy. Um, there. Just you go historical to the PCA, Center, uh, Wayne know, Sparkman. archives and look at the... Uh, Historical yep. reports. I mean, you'd probably get my hands on that. But here's the thing. This is probably going to be a subject that's going to be debated for the, from until I die and beyond, likely. Okay? Um, but here's the thing. As I was reading some of the respondents on the, on the website, now I'm, I'm no theologian. Uh, my guess is more of a the, far more of a theologian than I am, by far, infinitesimally more so. And I'm not saying that because I need a good grade. It's just true. Um, based on training and everything else. But, but here's the thing. As I'm reading some of these responses on the websites, on both sides, um, there's a lot of ignorance, frankly, um, as to what the issue is saying and not saying, who's saying what, who's not saying what. And I would suggest, number one, that Internet discussions uh, of this nature are usually profitless. Okay? That's Bill's opinion. But number two, these kinds of issues are bound to stir a great deal of emotion. And it's important that we read and understand the issues so we can make informed, reasonable responses. Um, I mentioned earlier that a couple of the comments I thought were uncharitable um, because they didn't seek to understand the author in the first place. They just thought they understood. And then I think we've shown that they didn't. So I'm going to put these resources on the website for those who want to know more about what this issue is and understand it more. I mean, I certainly care where you come down on this, okay, because I think it's obvious where I stand. Um, But it's important to know what the issue is and what it impacts and how it impacts and what people have said, Um, Contrary to um, Dr. Rayburn, this is not a relatively new thing. This has been discussed for quite a while now. And so be informed. And and we should apply that, I think, that instruction to every theological discussion, not just this one. So I will try to put those resources together to help people know more about this issue. Um, uh, One comment, Dr. Piper, I thought was interesting and Perhaps you could comment a little bit on it. Um, a man who said that this is not being practiced in any PCA churches across the country. I don't know. That's not what I hear. Right. <laughs> That's what I thought when I read that. Now, I have not been in every PCA church, so I can't make a definitive statement. Neither can Dr. Piper. I, we can't because we haven't been in every I don't think PCA man church. Has either. Right. And he can't. And I was going to write that. I was going to do what I said not to do. I was going to jump into the discussion and say that. Have you been in every PCA church? That obviously, he hasn't. I haven't. But I've heard that it has happened and is happening. And, um, well, they'll leave that to their own conscience as to how they should respond to that. But, um, 
be informed, understand these issues. They are important. Uh, this is one of the two sacraments that Christ gave his church, and I think we need to understand it correctly. Uh, the warning is serious. If the pedo communists are wrong, understand the danger that they place upon those who take it wrongly. And I'll leave it at that. Dr. Pipe, any closing comments? I think not, Bill. I just think that encourage people to, uh, to study it. I noticed that one respondent thought my uh, reference to uh, it being a subversive uh, practice was probably cutting off uh, discussion, but I'm frankly have come to the position that, uh, well, as I as I conclude there, I, I think it ought not to be taught in a denomination seminary or any seminary approved by the denomination to teach a practice declared by the church to be contrary to scripture is subversive. If the church wants to come back and re-examine this and declare it not to be contrary to Scripture. Even if it was a minority report, it doesn't matter. The church said it's contrary to the Scripture and the Confession. And to teach, to teach it is subversive. I think that discussion should take place amongst theologians at presbyteries. We can still have discussion, but I think it's a subversive doctrine. Yep. At the end of the day. And, um, yeah, and that's why there's... You can take exceptions, especially in the PCA, but there's always seems to be the caveat that you won't seek to undermine the church with your exceptions. Right. Um, be faithful. Those who hold to this, I, mean, I don't think any of us are castigating you, but just remember those vows that you took to uh, maintain the peace and purity of the church, and that applies to this issue too. So. Anyway, just a final wrap-up. As you've been listening, we've been talking, I think, candidly about some of the issues that surround the Pato communion debate, what it is, uh, the consequences, the effects, uh, some of the misunderstandings, perhaps, of the subject. And as I indicated, there'll be more information on the website about those resources. And we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary.